welcome to episode 18 of the Evolving Media Podcast, a podcast where we talk about where the world of media is heading and how we as creatives, producers and all-around professionals in this world can learn, adapt and improve our craft in order to thrive in the blindingly exciting, but at the same time pretty scary, future. My guest today is Houston Howard, professor in transmedia at LA Film School, lawyer, founder of 13 Creative, and author of the book You're Gonna Need a Bigger Story, the 21st century survival guide to not just telling stories, but building super stories. It's a pretty long title, but a pretty good book. Join us for a talk about why we should adapt transmedia storytelling into our daily creative life, how we can look at revenue possibilities as yet another tool in our creative toolbox, and what empathetic pitching really looks like. And of course, much more. It'll be an interesting ride, I can guarantee you that, so welcome. So Houston, uh, welcome to this podcast. I'm very, very happy to have you on board. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, I I seen some of the interviews that you've done for Film Courage over on YouTube, and I encourage every viewer to go and have a look at the, or every listener to go and have a look at those as well. Extremely informative, and and I mean one one thing I I take from those um, things that you talk about there is is how creators nowadays have so much more power, or at least the possibility to have so much more power when it comes to outreach, but also when it comes to your own position in the whole media industry. Do you feel that this changes what kind of people that will eventually succeed? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, if you look at just the, you know, the past 10 years, I think uh, that that we've been experiencing this amazing transition uh, in the entertainment industry and the media industry. It's a real seminal time that has been, I think, very favorable to creators in a lot of ways. Um, If you look at the transition between, you know, historically, anytime there's a transition from from, uh, you know, print to uh, radio, from radio into TV, from TV into mobile and digital. Anytime you have these transitions, there's always disruption. There's always sort of this almost a panic uh, with with a traditional guard that Mm. doesn't know what to do. Um, But at the same time, there are people within that transition that who aren't panicking that see this as an opportunity uh, and leverage that opportunity. And that's why you get changeover during these transition times. I think the, the, the five year, 10 year window that we're living in right now is one of these historic transition times that uh, that presents a lot of trepidation and a lot of anxiety for a lot of people because we're seeing a lot of industry turnover. We see majors switching out. We're seeing crazy things like, you know, Disney buying Fox and AT&T buying uh, Warner Brothers and Amazon buying Whole Foods and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And and, you know, I'm I'm here in Hollywood and everywhere you go, everyone is is scared and nervous. And they they say things like Rome is burning and we don't know what to do. And which in a lot of respects, that's true. But at the same time, while there's all these people running around thinking that Rome is burning, uh, there are, are, is now the opportunity for creators to jump in during this disruption and find a new path. Because what we've seen is in this five to 10 year window, there's been such a democratization of technology. I mean, you yeah. know, uh, that, that we 20 years ago, 
nobody had the tools to even create all the stuff that we can create. The entire entertainment industry was it was bottlenecked to these choke points of, you know, three to 15 old white guys in Hollywood that made all the decisions for all media for everything. And now because you can go straight to the market uh, through distribution channels, uh, through the internet, uh, you can cultivate your own audience. You can cultivate your own eyeballs. You can, uh, create as much as you can create as much as you have the hours in the day, in the day to create, you can do these things and never before in human history were you, were you able to do this? You know? So the biggest, the biggest failing I see of, of creators today is when they're, they've been in the industry, they've, they've been you know, either in just traditional Hollywood or sort of, you know, any sort of media industry worldwide is that they've, they're used to creating in the old way. And, uh, just, you know, not, I'm not talking about craft, just the thinking, the way they approach the old model, this is what they're comfortable with. And they're still doing that in today's market. And so they're using a 1995 mentality or a 2012 mentality or, hmm. or a 2005 mentality as they create for today's market. And the fact of the matter is they have a lot more tools at their disposal and a lot more opportunity at their disposal than, um, then, then they even understand. And if they understood how to use those tools and leverage that in the right way, it was massive opportunities, super, super exciting to be alive and in the industry right now at this time. At the same time, I'm feeling that it, you say that people are going around, running around scared and screaming that Rome is burning, which I see a lot as well, uh, especially in traditional, with traditional broadcasters, public service broadcasters, etc. and so forth over here in Europe. Uh, and, and I mean, it is scary because it's, it's in this kind of future world or the world we live in right now, it's on you to a certain extent or to quite, quite, quite a large extent it's on you to be able to identify what to do and how to do it but i guess sure. it, but i guess what what's needed then is a certain kind of mentality that you need to be knowledgeable enough to know what you don't know and what you do know and you have to be humble sure. enough to be able to take on board collaborators that can fill in the gaps that you can't fill in yourself so you need to be like a jack of all trades but at the same time very open to collaborating across borders Absolutely. And you know, this is this is something I get a lot when I talk to people. You know, I do I do a lot of I do a lot of uh, you know, speaking and keynoting around town, do a lot of workshops, mm-hmm. things like that for professionals. And and what they tell me is they're like, this this just seems like a lot of work. Uh, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I tell them, I said, you know, this is you know, there's this amazing website that if you go to it, it, it you can you can learn anything uh, about anything. And it's G-O-O-G-L-E dot com. <laughs> go there and type in how do I create a podcast? And you can spend yeah. the five to seven to 17 to 22 hours reading about how to make a podcast. And all of a sudden you can make a podcast or you're knowledgeable enough to then open yourself up to uh, f- figuring out who to collaborate with so, so you can have a good conversation with a collaborator about what you need to do and what the opportunity is. And it's, it's this really interesting thing when they, when they hear that they're like, yeah, but you know, that's the, you know, the 22 hours, 17 hours to learn how to do a podcast. I don't know. And <laughs> what I always tell them is especially independent creators is when you're, when you're 
creating a, a movie or any sort of project, when you're launching a podcast, whatever you're doing, uh, you're launching a brand. And, you know, especially when you're talking about filmmaking, which I deal with the most, uh, you're, you're launching a business. You're, 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 there's a product. You're going to get financing for that product. Hopefully, uh, once that financing is in place, you're going to staff that pro, uh, that, that, you know, that business with, 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 uh, staff. And you need to have the mentality that an entrepreneur has when they're launching a consumer brand. I'm 100% convinced that if, if entertainment producers and creators had the mentality of an entrepreneur when they when they launched consumer brands, they would create their entertainment differently. Oh, because yes. oh yes, if 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 you put your, you know, for example, I I know people right now. Uh, I I know a lady who's launching a um, a spa. So it's a small business. She's creating a spa. She just opened and just launched. Uh, uh, I think last week was her opening her opening day. Right. So it's small business right here in Los Angeles, and the amount of work she has to put in for the small business. You know, she's, she's the boss every day. She's up at five. Uh, she's going to bed, uh, at two, she is hustling throughout the day, putting out fires, dealing with everything. I knew people that launched a coffee shop and opened a coffee shop. The amount of work you have to do to launch your own business is incredible. Right. And, uh, you know, whether you're, you're starting a pizza shop or a hair salon Whatever it is, the, the the mentality of a small business owner when they launch consumer brands is I got to do what I have to do. I have to learn how to do jobs I never didn't know how to do before. And there's this hustle that comes along with entrepreneurism that is needed to be able to launch a business for some reason screenwriters or or authors or podcasters or, or, or entertainers in, in general, they think all they have to do is write five pages a day. And get their get their word count in a day or whatever it is, and as long as they create their own product, then they're going to be good. But that's just like that's just like saying that the, the the guy that's opening the pizza shop, all he has to worry about is making a good pizza, and then everything else will magically drop into place. And that's not it's not it's not the real world. Mm-hmm. And so today, I think the the opportunities are there to be able to create and grow your brand differently. And, and more effectively and engage audiences in a new way. But what it takes is an entrepreneurial mindset to say, I'm going to have to hustle. I have to learn. I have to grind. I have to now figure out how to collaborate in a new way because this is a new world. And maybe in 1997, you can just do your five pages a day as a screenwriter, but this isn't 1997 anymore. It's a whole different world. And so people, I think there's a really interesting dividing line. The people that, that get that mindset and get that entrepreneurial spirit and that entrepreneurial hustle, I think tremendous, tremendous upside. But what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of people that just that, that maybe are talented at the craft when they don't have that mindset, they're going to fall off. So mm-hmm. this is, this is what we're going to, this is what we're seeing in the transition. There's always a falling away of an old guard and then the, the emergence of a new guard. I think that new guard are creators, are artists and creators that have this really interesting entrepreneurial spirit where they're willing to learn and collaborate with these new platforms in mind. It feels like it's like the old sports saying that hard work beats talent all the time if talent doesn't do hard work. It, it sort of like feel it goes along the same way somehow. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that the, the romantic side of artists and people in entertainment is that 
is that the best product will always win. Uh, the best talent will always win. As long as I'm better than everybody, I'll be successful. And what we see in business, uh, and, you know, just not even just in entertainment and all of business is it's not always the best product that wins. And mm-hmm. it's, you, you know, I, I had an investor that, that, that told me that uh, you bet on the you bet on the horse and you bet on the jockey. That's the that's how he put it. He said, you know, a lot of times you can have a great looking horse, but if the jockey's not there, uh, mm-hmm. and, and if you don't trust that jockey, then all of a sudden it's going to be a bad bet. So you bet on the horse, you bet on the jockey, and so you can have the greatest. You can have great talent. You can have a great product, uh, but if you don't put the other pieces in play, then then it's not going to work. And so I think what we what what we see is um is talent is just one component uh that you have to have other things in place uh other you know other mechanisms other mindsets other things in place other pieces of the puzzle that you have to put together to really you know move things forward especially in today's market just because because it's different i can understand that people who have a a proposition an idea uh, an idea for a a book or a film or or whatever that it it might be a case also of not perhaps being able to identify the full potential or identify what else could be done and whom to collaborate with i mean it could it can be difficult enough uh, to just think of the uh, storyline for a film or a book or a series sure. n- never mind building the full ip so to speak but say sure. that i have a a great what i feel is a great idea and my mom has told me that it's a great idea for a book <laughs> or a documentary sure. film yeah but how How would you kick off the process of trying to making it into a viable proposition in today's world? I mean, I realize one thing is that it's going to be a long struggle. You have to pre- that's what you have to prepare for. But what sure. how would you set out? So the way I always do it and and the the way that I I help other people do it and the way I collaborate with other people is the very first thing that you do is you have to understand the the emotional premise the the emotional foundation of the thematic foundation of of your story of your project and once you understand that that uh, thematic foundation something that I call a soapbox what are you mm-hmm. trying to say yeah. Where did it come from? What's the thing in your heart that you pulled out and you're putting on screen, on paper, whatever it is? Uh, that is going to be an essential uh, palette to uh, to use to build the brand because all of a sudden with every sort of extension that you're going to create, every brand component you're going to create, you're going to make sure that emotional resonance is, 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 uh, is consistent. And that will then create a brand coherence. And one, one thing that I've seen is when I talk to, when I talk to people like Houston, I get all this, I get what you're saying, but, uh, but I, you know, I'm struggling figuring out how to do it for myself. And I have that, I have this project And and I just I, I see it when you talk about all these other case studies, but I just can't see it in mine. The uh, nine times out of ten, if I just sit with them and I help them figure out what exactly they're trying to say with their piece, what they're trying to say with their art, what is that emotional foundation, what is that soapbox? As soon as I unlock that, and the, to when they realize that and recognize that, they say, "Oh." Oh wow! Okay, great. I get it. So mm-hmm. then I can now I can do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, uh, and then they that that just gets the that you know you're pushing the boulder 
over the hill and then it's tumbling down the side. That really gets things going. So that creates this brand coherence that I think is is, is really, really super effective. Make sure that everything's going to be emotionally uh, similar uh, throughout the entire project. And that usually gets them going quickly, creatively beyond that. So then I think once you have that, the next thing that, that I'm a big advocate of is uh, is uh, really identifying and optimizing the story world of your of your project. Uh, not necessarily meaning that everything has to be sword and sandal fantasy or or epic sci-fi, uh, but you can have you know whether you're a documentary, whether you're a podcast, whether you're a feature film, whatever genre you're in. Uh, identifying the story world, I think, is the key to story potential. You yes. can find ways to extend a story based off individual characters, but until you understand your story potential, you'll never really understand the the. Uh, if you don't understand your story world, you're not going to understand your story potential. And if you don't understand your story potential, you're not going to understand your revenue potential or or any of the other ways to you know extend and and, and broaden the brand. And so, uh, you know, I was just dealing with a um, with a documentarian about this recently, and you know he. he he approached me about um, about you know, his documentary, and he said, "Houston, I get how this works with Star Wars, and I get how this works with Marvel, but you know, mm-hmm. I'm doing a I'm doing a documentary. How does this work?" And I said, "You have to figure out your story world." He he was doing a documentary. It was an interesting idea. He was doing a documentary about a kid who was trying to get out of inner city Chicago, a ghetto in the inner city of Chicago. And okay. the way he, yeah. what he was doing to get, to get out of the inner of inner city, inner city Chicago is the kid was producing a documentary about his ghetto. Mm. And this documentary was about the kid producing a documentary <laughs> and uh, which was a really interesting uh, piece. And so, uh, you know, we talked about uh, you know, a, a few easy ways to be able to extend that story. But, uh, but really, uh, when I sat down with him and we figured out the the soapbox and the emotional connectivity of it, we turned our attention to the story world and we, you know, we identified this particular government housing situation as the story world. And yeah. this kid who was tr- who was creating a documentary was just one really interesting character uh, trying to make it out of that government housing unit. And uh, and so then. He was able to identify another character, uh, you know, real person. I call them characters, but the real people, which was this uh, this uh, yeah, it was a hundred year old uh, uh, Navy vet who was there that that uh, there was this old lady who swore like a sailor. Uh, all these interesting people that had really similar journeys of, of trying to get out of this place. And so all of a sudden, once he realized the story world was the entire housing unit and the kid shooting the documentary was just one story. All of a sudden he was able to launch a podcast delving into the, uh, the old war stories of the veteran. He was able to then design like a a self-published novel that's going to go into the life of this, of this old lady that, that swore all the time Uh, and, and then figure out how to link them all together and cross them over to create this energy. And, but that unlocked the story potential, whether you're talking about documentary, whether you're talking about, you know, a feature film, the story, world is going to be essential and and once you have that that soapbox in place and the story world in place i think then the, the the you know you have to start looking for you know how do i how do i uh how do i both engage the audience but also you have to look for revenue potential i think you have to you know you 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 understand just as well as i understand as well as anybody that's in this business understands if if 
you know, trying to find funding and trying to find revenue is always an interesting game. And uh, I think I think largely, um, you know, so I remember just dialing way back, I, you know, from the very first Story World conference uh, that they had in San Francisco, yeah. uh, Story World LA. So I was, I was sort of in the mix with all that early stuff, you know, and following, you know, just at, just in the crowd, right? Uh, you know, following Jeff Gomez and Allison Norrington and Henry Jenkins, all those are the early transmedia crowd, which I learned so much from. And uh, just, just hearing uh, the, over the next few years, the big question was, how do I monetize this? How do I monetize this? How do I monetize oh, yes. this? And, um, and, and what I looked at is, is, and what I recognized is, is the projects that they were putting together, um, you know, they're, they're, they were, they were new media leaning and they were leaning into, into technology and into media that didn't have, uh, they didn't have clear business models and then have like obvious business models to be able to generate revenue all of a sudden. This doesn't make sense to investors. It doesn't make sense for brands to jump on if you don't have already have an audience. And and it was this vicious cycle. And so uh, so I'm a I'm a big proponent. I, well, I feel like a lot of that a lot of the crowd is they feel like they have to make a binary choice, right? So they they say I either can go traditional or I can go new media. Right. Like, which one do I pick? I can either do a movie or I can either do, you know, uh, VR, AR, MR, any of that stuff. Right. Do I, I have to I have to pick one drives revenue, but but at the same time, it's traditional. One doesn't drive a lot of revenue, but at the same time, it's cooler. And actually what I want to do, mm-hmm. I'm a very big proponent of mixing the two. I don't think it has to be a binary choice. I think you can have your cake and you can eat it, too. And all of a sudden, I, I you know. I'm very focused on building transmedia business plans that have clearly identifiable revenue generators that are that are tied synergistically with new media offerings that that may not generate revenue, but then generate the engagement that will then feed the revenue generator down the road. And uh, and I think that's a strategy that a lot of people uh, haven't put together or didn't put together early in the transmedia days, which then caused caused them to leave the transmedia space because they think it's just a you know this is like a new media fad, and so figuring out how to make business sense out of it for the, for an investor to look at and say this makes business sense to me, I'm willing to put money behind it. I think it's super super important. So soapbox story world, then you have to figure out story opportunity uh, that can some that will generate revenue some that can generate engagement and then put that all together. I think you, you now have the, the foundations of a really interesting package to present to people. And I think it's nowadays, it might be that back in the days of the first story world conference, etc., that in, the possibilities weren't all that obvious how to, for the different revenue models that could be obtained for a project. I mean, nowadays, if you look at what some, some streamers on Twitch make or whatever, you know, sure. there are, there are so many venues of uh, also, going past the traditional broadcasters and the traditional media houses, etc., and get direct revenue streams from a lot of different parts that perhaps weren't that readily available a decade ago. Sure. No, I completely agree. And that's part of the like the new world opportunities. You know, I look at I look at that early story world crowd. Like I said, you know, Henry Jenkins, Jeff Gomez, Allison Norton, uh, uh, Christy Dina. And, uh, I, when I say the, the old crowd, uh, they're still there's they're, they're the current crowd, too. They're still doing amazing work. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but I, but I looked at the, I, I look at those professionals as, you know, they were hacking through the jungle 
um, early on uh, when there wasn't really a path forward. And, ever, and they were like they were the explorers jumping in the boat crossing this the ocean not knowing what they're going to find on the other side and uh now for people like me that have the benefit of of learning from people like them uh i don't necessarily have to hack through the jungle anymore because now i have we have tools and we have opportunities that that uh that they didn't that they didn't have at the time that none of us had at the time uh but at the same time they kind of cleared a way for us to to say okay this is the philosophy that they work so hard to be able to ingrain now with these modern tools and these modern distribution lines now i can put something together that just you know makes a lot more sense uh to to uh to investors right and i think this fixes this helps fix the the monetization problem as Mm -hmm. obviously as long as you get your you know it's a good idea and a good you know good creative and things like that um but i think that that helps that helps uh that helps solve a lot of that problem because you know i hear you know we've all heard the term starving artists and i think i think i'm just 100% convinced that in today's world uh with the tools that we readily have have available the democratization of technology everything that's happened with distribution channels and everything the internet that no longer if we have the right mindset no longer do artists have to starve i'm mm-hmm. 100% yeah. an advocate of well-fed artists and i think that the, the opportunity is is there to create a well-fed artist I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I'd like to finally, because, um, I mean, uh, as we said, we could talk about this for hours, but I'll be happy to get back to you on all of these matters uh, in the the future. But one thing that that really struck me, and because what happens with someone who is starting to go into these fields or into these these opportunities with their project is that they need to uh, convince other people to either collaborate or or to invest or to be a part of the journey in some capacity and one of the things that you talked about in your film courage series was uh, uh, the art of uh, empathetic pitching which i found yes. cor- uh, resonated quite n- quite heavily with me uh, c- could you just explain what you mean by pitching empathetically sure so uh empathetic pitching uh is is what i refer to as as uh you know when when you go in and pitch to somebody you're pitching them on what they care about. And this is something that I've seen. I, I hear a lot of pitches. I pitch a lot. And uh, so I, I, I sit on both sides of the table quite consistently. And uh, and what I find is, is when people pitch, they pitch to other people like everyone is excited about what they're excited about. Mm. And, uh, and that's not that, and that's rarely the case. Right. And so I see that, I see this a lot where, where somebody who is a director or a cinematographer, uh, you know, a DP, they have a really interesting, uh, film project that they want to go pitch and they want to, and they, and they go to, to an investor and they sit in front of an investor and they, uh, they, they have a lookbook and they get, they run through the lookbook and they're talking about uh, uh, you know color palettes and f stop and lenses and you know uh, aspect ratios and all the stuff that they love and they get excited about <laughs> but but it's almost a certainty that the investor on the other side of the table doesn't care anything about that. Not only don't they don't care, but they they don't even know what they're talking about. It's a completely different language, right? And so you have to understand when you're when you have a project you want to pitch, 
you have to understand to whom you're pitching. And if you're going to go pitch an investor, especially a private equity investor, they're mainly going to be focused and concerned about risk, revenue potential, market opportunity, all that stuff. Understanding that, you now have to cater your entire pitch to that. You have to cater your entire pitch to, to, you know, this is how I'm going to generate revenue. This is how I'm going to hedge your investment and diversify the risk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you're going to if you're going to go pitch the same project to a director that you want to attach, all of a sudden, when you go to that director, you're not necessarily going to talk about revenue potential. You're not going to talk about, you know, ancillary revenue. You're not going to talk about hedging the investment risk because the director's not making the investment. And by and large, the, the investor probably is not going to be a profit participant on the back end. Usually, typically in Hollywood, directors are paid their director fee and they don't participate in the back end. So you can drone on and on about like how much profit you can have in your 10 year in your 10 year plan to a director. But that's not even going to it's not going to move the needle because they're not going to participate in it. If anything, that may make them frustrated and surly that they're not participating in it. So so all of a sudden you you have to now cater that pitch to what a director cares about. What so what do directors care about? All of a sudden directors care about story, they care about look, they care about winning Oscars, they care about, you know, the the, the characters and all the, the 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 interesting narrative stuff, right? You got to cater that to them. Right. Producers will then have different uh, uh, different focuses and different, uh, you know, intents. People at different stages of the career are going to want different uh, different stuff. So I'm 100 percent convinced. And this has been this has proved real in my own career is that usually with every product product and project that you have, you will probably end up if you do it right, have 10 or 11 or 12 different pitch decks, depending on for the same project, depending on who you're pitching to. I, I, I always tell people the one of the most, you know, I was a lawyer before I got into entertainment. So I consider mm-hmm. myself a, a recovering lawyer, almost 10 years <laughs> recovered at this point. But the but but understand like maybe this is a holdover from my lawyer days. But before I ever go pitch to anybody, I do a tremendous amount of work. Uh, this is not the right phrase, but like cyber stalking people before I pitch to them. Uh, I'm sure there's maybe there's a better investigating. And I guess that's a better <laughs> word, but the uh, uh, less creepy. But uh, but I'll go. I'll I'll look at their LinkedIn page. I'll find and uh, you know I'll see where they went to school. I'll, I'll go to their IMDb page if they're in film and television. I'll see what product uh, projects they've been a part of. What's in pre-production? What's already been produced? Other actors, other people they've worked with. Have I ever worked with those same people? I'll go and find their their Instagram page. I'll go to their Twitter profile. If they have a blog, I'll read their blog entries. If they retweet articles, I I read the articles they retweet. You know, I'll find interviews with them in the trades of Variety and Deadline and things like that. And and it's tri- like especially in an age of social media. People give you tremendous amounts of, inter, uh, of of information about what they want to achieve in their career. What like what do they want to you know what they still want to do that they haven't been able to do? Who they like to work with? What they don't like to do? Who they don't like to work with? All that information is out there, and all of a sudden I take it and aggregate that information, and 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 I and I cater that. Uh, directly into the pitch that I then pitched to them. You know, there was a there was a guy I pitched to, um, uh, you know, several months ago. But he was a uh, he was uh, a lead animator 
uh, on uh, 17 Pixar movies. And so uh, he was spent his whole career in Pixar, just retired from Pixar and was out doing some independent projects. We had, we had a project we were putting together with this interesting cryptocurrency project, had an animated piece. I would I wanted this guy uh, to attach to the animated mm-hmm. part of the of the project. So uh, so I lined up a pitch with him. And leading up to that pitch, I was investigating this guy. Uh, I was reading interviews with him. I was, I was, I, I went to his Twitter profile. I, you know, did the whole thing. And in one of, in a comment on a tweet, he had a tweet that was that was an old tweet. He had a comment. On, uh, there was a comment from somebody else who who he then responded to that comment and mentioned the reason he. Uh, he retired from Pixar is that he always had a dream of directing a live action movie and mm-hmm. he wanted to just try to get out there and direct live action. And this was a comment, a reply to a comment on an old tweet. And I've like doing my investigation saw this the day before I went to go pitch to him and kind of panicked because I was going to go pitch to him this live action or the, the, the animated component of this project. And mm-hmm. based on that changed the whole thing. We also had a live action component and then went to him to pitch to him. And, and I, you know, I said in the pitch, I said, you know, I, um, uh, uh, you know, listen, I, I don't want to speak for you, but if I spent 17 years in animation, maybe I would want to try my hand at live action. And, uh, you know, uh, would, would this be something that you're interested in? I, we would, I like your eye, your artistic style. Uh, we'd love for you to kind of attach to the live action piece. And all of a sudden he's super excited. Yes, it's exactly what I wanted to do. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then that, once he's attached to that, then lend, lended himself to also being able to kind of put his eyeballs on the animated component as well. Oh yeah. But if I, ha- if I hadn't done that research and, and empathetically position that to him and what he wanted to achieve, then all of a sudden like that wouldn't have been successful. And so, so most artists the, for pitches, their pitches are all about them. It's all they're self-focused. This is my project. This is about me. This is about, you know, uh, what I want to do and what I want to achieve. And this is why most pitches, I think, fail in the marketplace. I think if 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 you cater that to, to figure out how you can bring value to other people and position it that way empathetically, then what I found is that you're you're wildly more successful. So all this thing has to be authentic. You know, I didn't I you know, but presuming it's authentic and and presuming that you're not lying to people or being fraudulent, then all of a sudden, when you just position it out of your own your own space, really catering to other people, uh, then all of a sudden they they jump in and uh, and in business, what you see in business, like the Silicon Valley model of startup, is that. One person can't do it. If you're alone in a rowboat trying to row, you know, down the down the river, uh, you're probably not going to get that far. You need you need more people. And, and it's all about the team. And it's about how do I have a crew in my boat that where we can all work together and, and, and move move this project to where we need to be. And so but in order to get that crew to attach, you, you have to position it uh, you know, in a way that what's in it for them. And that seems self-evident. But it's so rare. I feel like art in general and artists are are very self-focused. They're very, you know, um, they're very arrogant in a way. And listen, I'm an artist. I'm an artist myself. So there's an arrogance that comes along with art that mm-hmm. that creates this preciousness about it. And, I, and arrogance sounds pejorative, but but it's it's this, you know, 
our our art and our projects they're like our kids right and so so it's very easy to to hold it closer than maybe an entrepreneur a consumer brand entrepreneur that invents the new toothbrush but at the same time if we just like get outside of ourselves a little bit figure out how this benefits other people you're going to find a lot more collaborators a lot more investors a lot quicker uh, but you have to put yourself in the shoes of the other people on the other side of the, uh, on the other side of the table. And I feel that that's a process that will make everything more fulfilling uh, for you as well as the creator to be able to honestly work with other people and to let them into your process and see how it grows organically into something that perhaps you couldn't have made on your own, basically. Houston, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast episode. I'll be extremely happy to have you on board again in a future episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it anytime. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thank you.